Welcome to another episode of the Powerless to Powerful Recovery Podcast. My name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. I want to remind everyone that the mission is to share experience, strength, and hope across multiple media platforms, the story of addiction and the road to recovery. We're not affiliated in any way with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step-based groups or organizations. The goal is to share our experience, strength, and hope with you, and just maybe somebody desperately in need will find recovery. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about step two, we agnostics in the big book found on page 44. You know, the first three steps is really where the solution starts to kick in. Just like school, there's an order. First grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, middle school, junior high, high school, college. Same thing with recovery. The first step is step one, admitting powerless and unmanageable that when I start, I can't stop. I have no control. My willpower is non-existent. We went over that and more about alcoholism in a previous episode. So now transitioning from there, we're going to start to go into more of the solution being step two. The principle associated with the step is hope. You got to have some hope that you can be restored to sanity. Man, it's critical. The first three steps can be described as I can't, he can, and I think I'll let him. So today we're going to explore the fact that maybe we can just believe just a little bit that he can. And that's the goal today. This step is easily overlooked in the big book. It's real easy to sit down with a sponsee when you're working with somebody and say, do you believe in God? Do you have a conception of a higher power? Oh, you do? Good. Let's go to three. But there's so much in here. One of the founders of the program, Bill W., was an atheist. This chapter and what it's designed for is designed for everybody who is struggling with the higher power concept, who has issues coming to believe, who may be prejudiced as kids, impressed on them by their families. Maybe they have a resentment toward God or resentment to the idea of a power greater than themselves. So what this chapter is designed for is to take every type of objection that one might have against believing in a higher power, rebuttal it before they can say their objection. So ultimately at the end, when we ask you or your sponsor asks you, or when you read the book, it says, do I now believe or am I willing to believe there's a power greater than myself? That answer will be yes. The solution is found in the first three steps. Admitting powerless, asking for help, the principle associated with that is honesty. The second step, the principle associated is hope. And the third step is faith. Making a decision to turn your will in your life. But we're going to be focusing on step two. So if you want to grab your big books, if you have them, or if you're going to be following along in the car, I'm going to be going back and forth from my experience, the way I interpret the book, and I'm going to be reading the book as well. So I'm going to be jumping back and forth a little bit. So try to stay with me. So again, we're on page 44, chapter 4, We Agnostics. In the preceding chapter, you've learned something about alcoholism and addiction. The preceding chapter was more about alcoholism. That is step one. We hope we've made a clear distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, Or if when drinking or using, you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably an alcoholic. 
That's a great definition of powerlessness. No control, can't stop, no willpower, non-existent. Everything externally is unmanageable. It's really easy to describe the difference between powerless and unmanageable. Powerless is internal, unmanageable is external. So if you've admitted powerless in step one, you've been honest with yourself about the severity of your condition, now you're ready for two. If that be the case, you're suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Only a spiritual experience. And remember, it's an illness, it's a disease, it's progressive, it gets worse, never better. If left untreated, it causes death. We've addressed that in the doctor's opinion. There's a previous episode on that. If you haven't checked that one out yet, please, by all means, give it a chance. Only a spiritual experience will conquer. To one who feels he's an atheist or agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. But to continue as he me- as he is means disaster, especially if he's an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. To be doomed an alcoholic death or to live upon a spiritual basis are not easy alternatives to face. We only have two choices. Get busy living or get busy dying. The book says it in a multitude of ways. There's no in-between anymore. It's either life or it's death. It's either active addiction, the pain, the misery, or it's recovery. The most amazing life that you could ever, ever want to have. But it isn't so difficult. About half of our original fellowship were of exactly that type. At first, some of us tried to avoid the issue, hoping against hope we were not true alcoholics. But after a while, we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. There it is again. Find a spiritual base of life or else. There's no in between anymore. It's either one or the other. Perhaps it's going to be that way with you, but cheer up. Something like half of us thought we were atheists or agnostics. Our experience shows you need not be disconcerted. So the next part we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about these morals, these values, these beliefs. And if that was good enough, we would have recovered long ago. I always wanted to be a good father. I always wanted to be a good husband. I always wanted to be a good son. I know right from wrong. I value my family. I value my health. I value my friendships. But my actions just reflected the opposite. So if that was good enough, I would have recovered long ago. And this is what the book says. If a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism or addiction, many of us would have recovered long ago. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us, no matter how much we tried. We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comfort. In fact, we could will these things with all our might, but the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. So I come to believe in step two. When I work with guys, the homework, I have them identify their belief in a higher power. If they have one, their conception, the basics of it. And I have them write down some spiritual characteristics that they want to live by. Some morals, some values, some beliefs. To be honest, to be sober, to be loving, to be forgiving, to be tolerant. 
So when they make that decision in step three to let their actions reflect their belief, they know how to apply it. So lack of power, that is our dilemma. So we tap into the source of power that flows through us. This connection we establish gives us the ability to do these things that we've never been able to do before. That's the beginning. That's exactly what this book about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Will solve your problem. That means we've written a book we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. And it means, of course, that we're going to talk about God. Here, difficulty arises with agnostics. Many times we talk to a new man, watch his hope rise as we discuss his alcoholic problems and explain our fellowship. But his face falls when we speak of spiritual matters. So now it's going to talk about being prejudiced as kids. You know, a lot of times I work with guys and most guys, when you work with them and you, you meet with them the first time, they're going to let you know right away that they, they're having, they'll have a trouble with two things. They're either going to talk about the higher power, God, how that's an obstacle for them, or they're usually going to talk about making amends in step eight and step nine. So it's going to talk about being prejudiced. And a lot of times when I work with guys and they see the word God and it just, it upsets them and it's an obstacle and it's a roadblock. The easiest way for me to overcome that with the guys who are really difficult, and really having a problem. When you see the word God, G-O-D, can we agree on good, orderly direction? G-O-D. I've never had anyone object to that. So especially when we mention the word God, for we have reopened a, a, a subject which our man thought he neatly evaded or entirely ignored. We know how he feels. We've shared his honest doubt and prejudice. Some of us have been violently anti-religious. To others, the word God brought up a particular idea with him which someone had tried to impress them during childhood. Perhaps we rejected this particular conception because it seemed inadequate. With that rejection, we imagine we abandoned the God idea entirely. We are bothered that faith Independence upon a power beyond ourselves was somewhat weak, even cowardly. We looked at this world with wearing individuals, wearing theological systems, inexplainable calamity with deep skepticism. We look askance at many individuals who claim to be godly. How could a supreme being have anything to do with it at all? And who could comprehend a supreme being anyhow? Yet in other moments, when we found ourselves thinking, when enchanted by a starlit night, well, then who made all this? The feeling of awe was wonder but it was fleeting and soon lost. It's real easy to see what's going on in the world today. The chaos, the hurt, the death, the destruction, and question that word God. Now we're going to be talking about coming to believe. In this part of the book, it uses really specific vocabulary to really identify the point that they're trying to get across to you. Became willing to believe. Willing. Just willing to believe. That's what this step's about. So yes, we of agnostic temperament have had these thoughts and experiences. Let us make haste to reassure you that we found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power grade in ourselves, we commenced to get results. 
even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power which is God. So I just have to be willing to believe. I don't even have to fully define it or comprehend it, and I'll get results. Wow. Much to our relief, we discover we need not consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to effect a contact with him. Look at this vocabulary. Inadequate is sufficient. You don't have to fully define or comprehend it. Just got to be willing to believe and you'll get results. Just believe. As soon as we admitted the possible, just the possibility of existence, of creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power direction provided we took other simple steps. We found that God does not make too hard terms for those who seek him. To us, the realm of the spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It's open, we believe, to all men. So it's open to everybody. As soon as we just admitted the possibility, just the possible existence, we began to be possessed of a new sense and power and direction. You don't have to fully define it. You don't even have to comprehend it. Your belief could be insufficient. You don't have to believe what anyone else believes. You just have to be willing. Just a possibility. And it's open to everybody. That's hope. That's hope. When therefore we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. This applies to other spiritual expressions you find in this book. Don't let any prejudice you may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. The spiritual belief will grow once you experience. It'll be an undeniable fact that there's a higher power that works in your life and has performed a miracle. You'll see it in others. But this is the start. This is all we needed to commence spiritual growth, to affect our first conscious relation with God as we understood him. Afterward, we found ourselves accepting many things which seemed entirely out of reach. That was growth, but if we wish to grow, you see the words grow, grow, growth. We had to begin, this is the beginning, begin somewhere. So we used our own conception, however limited it was. We need to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe or am I willing to believe there's a power greater than myself? As soon as a man can say that he does believe or is willing to believe, we empathetically assure him he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, we're building a foundation. This is the cornerstone, this higher power, this belief We're going to build the foundation off of it. A wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. That was great news to us, for we assumed we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith which seemed difficult to believe. When people presented us with spiritual approaches, how frequently do we all say, I wish I had what that man has. I'm sure it would work if I could only believe as he believes, but I cannot accept as surely true the many articles of faith which are so plain to him. So it was comforting to learn that we could commence at a simpler level. This is just the beginning. Just got to be willing to believe in this power, to identify some morals, some values, some beliefs, to make a decision in step three, to let your actions reflect that. Consistency creates a habit, creates your identity, one you could be proud of. And when I love the way I feel, in the identity I've created, in the man today that I see in the mirror, 
I like what I see. Besides a seeming inability to accept much on faith, we often found ourselves handicapped by abstinence, sensitiveness, and unreasoning prejudice. Many of us have been so touchy that even casual reference to spiritual things made us bristle with antagonism. This sort of thinking had to be abandoned, though some of us resisted. We found no great difficulty in casting aside such feelings. Here it is again. Get busy living or get busy dying. Find a spiritual basis of life or else. Suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Here it is again. Faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we tried to be on other questions. In this respect, drugs and alcohol were a great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. The pain, the desperation, the broken, the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment, the self-hatred. Time and time again, repeating the desperate experiment of that first drink, that first hit. Continuing to prove ourselves exception to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. The pain that's associated with that for decades becomes a great persuader for me to be willing to believe. Sometimes this was a tedious process. We hope no one else will be as prejudiced for as long as some of us were. The reader may ask why you should believe in a power greater than themselves. We think there's good reasons. Let us have a look at some of them. So now we're going to talk about visual proof. Sometimes it's hard to believe in something you can't see to have that type of faith. In the next part of the book, we're going to be talking about how we do that all the time with other things. The practical individual of today is a stickler for facts and results. Nevertheless, the 20th century readily accepts theories of all kinds, provided they're firmly grounded in fact. We have numerous theories, for example, about electricity. Everybody believes them without a murmur of a doubt. Why this ready acceptance? Simply because it's impossible to explain what we see, feel, direct, and use without reasonable assumption as a starting point. Everybody nowadays believes in scores of assumptions, which there's good evidence, but no perfect visual proof. And does not science demonstrate that visual proof is the weakest proof? It is being constantly revealed as mankind studies the material world that outward appearances are not inward reality at all. To illustrate, the prosaic steel girders are massive electrons whirling around at each other at incredible speed. These tiny bodies are governed by precise laws. These laws hold true throughout the material world. Science tells us so. We have no reason to doubt it. When, however, the perfectly logical assumption is suggested that underneath the material world and life as we see it, there is an all-powerful guiding creative intelligence. Right there, our perverse streak comes to the surface. We lavishly set out to convince ourselves it isn't so. We read wordy books. We indulge in windy arguments, thinking we believe this universe needs no God to explain it. Were our contentions true, it would follow that life originated out of nothing, means nothing, it proceeds nowhere. A prosaic steel girder, masses of electrons whirling around each other. Science tells us so. I don't argue that. I don't know much about electricity. But I know that when I turn the light switch on, it comes on. That's good enough for me. People present a pretty powerful argument at all times why I want you to have faith. When you go to meetings, when you hear these guys talk about these higher powers, their conception, their belief, this faith that's performed a miracle in their life, 
they're presenting a pretty powerful argument too. Instead of regarding ourselves as intelligent agents, spearheads of God's ever-advancing creations, we agnostics and atheists choose to believe that our human intelligence was the last word, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and end of all, rather vain of us, wasn't it? We who have traveled this dubious path beg you to lay aside prejudice even against organized religion. What we have learned, what we have learned that whatever the human frailties of various faiths may be, those faiths have given purpose and direction to millions. People, people of faith have a logical idea of what life is all about. Actually, we used to have no reasonable conception. We used to amuse ourselves by cynically dissecting spiritual beliefs and practices when we might have observed that many spiritual-minded persons of all races, colors, and creeds were demonstrating a degree of stability, happiness, and usefulness, which we should have sought ourselves. All around, man, they're presenting that powerful argument. They're demonstrating the degree of stability. They're happy. They're useful to others. They're of service. They have meaningful relationships. And every one of them is saying that power entered into their hearts and lives in a way which is a miracle. Man, it's right there. But instead, we look at the human defects of these people and sometimes use their shortcomings as a basis of wholesale condemnation. We talked of intolerance while we were intolerant ourselves. I love this quote. We miss the reality and the beauty of the forest because we are diverted by the ugliness of some of its trees. We never gave the spiritual side of life a fair hearing. I could go to meetings. I could look for the differences instead of listen for the similarities. I could look at the guys who continuously relapse or high maybe there and say this program doesn't work. I could look at the guys who claim to be extremely religious who Bible thump, and then once they leave church, they act like morons, and I could say that religion doesn't work, that God doesn't work. But if I do that, I'm missing the beauty of the forest because I'm getting diverted by the ugliness of some of its trees. So in our personal stories, the portion of stories in the back of the book, you'll find a wide variation in the way we, in a way which each teller approaches and conceives of the power which is greater than himself. Whether we agree with a particular approach or conception seems to make a little difference. Experience has taught us that these matters are about which for our purpose we need not be worried. They're questions for each individual to settle for themselves. On one proposition, however, these men and women are strikingly agreed. Every one of them has gained access to and believes in a power greater than themselves. This power in each case has accomplished the miraculous and the humanly impossible. A celebrated American statesman put it, let's look at the record, pay attention. Here are thousands of men and women, worldly indeed, they flatly declare that since they have come to believe in a power greater than themselves, to take a certain attitude toward that power, and to do certain simple things, there has been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. In the face of collapse and despair, in the face of the total failure of their human resources, they found that a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. This happened soon after they wholeheartedly met a few simple requirements. Once confused and baffled by the seeming futility, futility means pointless or useless existence, the life that they've been living. They showed the underlying reasons why they were he making heavy going of life. Leave aside the drug question or the drink question. They tell why living was so unsatisfactory. 
They show how the change came over them. When many hundreds of people are able to say the conscious presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives, they present a pretty powerful argument why one should have faith. Mm. Now we're going to be transitioning into talking about material, the material world, and our readiness to change our point of view with material things always. Why not do that with our spiritual belief? This world of ours has made more material progress in the last century than all the millenniums which went before. Almost everyone knows the reason. Students of ancient history tell us that intellect of men in those days was equal to the best of today. Yet in ancient times, material progress was painfully slow. The spirit of the modern scientific inquiry, research, and invention was almost unknown. In the realm of the material, men's minds were fettered by superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. Some of the contemporaries of Columbus thought the around Earth preposterous. Others came near putting Galileo to death for his astronomical heresies. We ask ourselves this. Are not some of us just as biased and unreasonable about the realm of the spirit as were the ancients about the realm of the material? What a question. Even in the present century, American newspapers were afraid to print an account of the Wright brothers' first successful flight at Kitty Hawk. Had not all efforts at flight failed before? Did not Professor Langley's flying machine go to the bottom of the Potomac River? Was it not true that the best mathematical minds have proved that man could never fly? Had not people said God had reserved this privilege to the birds? Only 30 years later, the conquest of the air was almost an old story, and airplane travel was in full swing. But in most fields of our generation, we've witnessed the complete liberation of our thinking. Show any longshoreman a Sunday supplement describing a proposal to explore the moon by means of rocket, and he'll say, I bet they do it, and maybe not so long either. Is not our age characterized by the ease which we discard old ideas for new, by the complete readiness which we throw away the theory or gadget which does not work for something new which does? We had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. I do it all the time with material things. I get a better car. I got a VCR. I loved it. Then DVDs came out. I discarded the VCR for a DVD player. Then a Blu-ray came out. I discarded the DVD for a Blu-ray player. Now I stream it. Because it's better. I started with a pager, then I got a flip phone, then I got a razor, then I got a Blackberry, then I got a smartphone, then I got an Android, then I got an iPhone. I do it all the time with material things. Why not our readiness to change our point of view? And I'll tell you why. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of usefulness, uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar flight? Of course it was. When we saw others solve their problems by a simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe, we had to stop doubting the power of God. Our ideas did not work, but the God idea did. Wow. The Wright brothers' almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment. Without that, nothing could have happened. 
we agnostics and atheists were sticking to the idea that self-sufficiency would solve our problems when others showed us that God's sufficiency worked for them. We began to feel like those who had insisted their rights would never fly. Logic is great stuff. We like it. And we still like it. It's not by chance we're given the power to reason, to examine the evidence of our senses, to draw our conclusions. This is one of man's magnificent attributes. We agnostically inclined would not feel satisfied with a proposal which does not lend itself to reasonable approach or interpretation. Hence, we are at pains to tell why we think our present faith is reasonable, why we think it more sane than logical to believe than not to believe, why we say our former thinking was soft and mushy when we threw up our hands in doubt and said we don't know. When we became alcoholics and addicts, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fiercely face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? Today, God is everything. Now we're going to be transitioning into the faith. Having faith. Just believing and having faith and experiencing. We all have faith. That's what this next part of the book is going to describe to us. Arrived at this point, we were squarely confronted with the question of faith. We couldn't duck the issue. Some of us had already walked far over the bridge of reason toward the desired shore of faith. The outlines of the promise of the new land had brought luster to tired eyes and fresh curves of flagging spirits. Friendly hands had stretched out in welcome. We were grateful that reason brought us so far. But we somehow couldn't quite step ashore. Perhaps we've been leaning too heavy on reason that last mile. We didn't like to lose our support. That was natural. But let us think a little more closely. Without knowing it, have we not been brought to where we stood by a certain kind of faith? So when I get to step two with my sponsees, or when I started to work with my sponsor and I made it to step two, it was impossible for me to say that I had no faith. I had shown up. I had been going to meetings. I had read the first 51 pages of the, of the book, admitted powerless and unmanageable, fully conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic and an addict. There was no other way for me. I fully submitted and surrendered to this program. I waved the white flag. I showed up again for step two. Obviously, I have some faith that this might be the solution for me. For did not we believe in our own reasoning? Did we not have the confidence in our ability to think? What was that but short of faith? Yes, we've been faithfully, object, objectively faithful to God of reason. So in one way or another, we discovered that faith had been involved all the time. We found, too, that we've been worshipers. What a state of mental goose flesh that used to bring on. Had we not variously worshipped people, sentiment, things, money, ourselves? And then with a better motive, have we not worshipfully beheld the sunset, the sea, or a flower? Who of us have not loved something or somebody? How much did these feelings, these loves, these worships have to do with pure reason? Little or nothing we saw at last. Were not these things the tissue out of which our lives were constructed? Did not these feelings, after all, determine the course of our existence? It was impossible to say we had no capacity for faith or love or worship. In one form or another, we've been living by faith and little else. Imagine life without faith. Were nothing left but pure reason, it wouldn't be life. We believe in life. Of course we did. We could not prove life in the sense you could prove a straight line is the shortest distance between two points, yet there it was. 
Could we still say the whole thing was nothing but a mass of electrons created out of nothing, means nothing, whirling onto a destiny of nothingness? Of course we couldn't. The electrons themselves seem more intelligent than that. At least so the chemist said. <laughs> Hence we saw that reason isn't everything. Neither is reason as most of us use it entirely dependable. Though eminent from our best minds, what about people who prove that man can never fly? Yet we've been seeing another kind of flight, a spiritual liberation from this world. People who rose above their problems. They said God made these things possible and we only smiled. We'd seen spiritual release, but like to tell ourselves it wasn't true. Actually, we were fooling ourselves. For deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. This connection, this idea of God, it's in us. It flows through us. But the problem is it gets obscured by calamity, by pomp, by drugs, by alcohol, by worship of other things. But in some, some form or another, it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was as part of our makeup just as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it's only there that he may be found. It was so with us. If we can only clear the ground a bit, if our testimony helps sweep away any prejudice, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself, then if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. In this book, you'll read an experience of a man who thought he was an atheist. His story is so interesting that some of it should be told now. His change of heart was dramatic, convincing, and moving. So just like everything in the book, to know the program is to know the book. It uses experiences from the first hundred members who recovered from this disease. This story is going to sum up all the various points that were just made. I'll try to point them out to you as long as we go. Our friend was a minister's son. He attended a church school where he became rebellious at what he thought an overdose of religious education. There it is. It was prejudiced. It was impressed upon him as a child. He had resentment. For years thereafter, he was dogged by trouble, frustration, business failure, insanity, fatal illness, suicide. These calamities in his immediate family embittered him and depressed him. Post-war disillusionment, every more serious addiction, and pending mental and physical collapse brought him to the point of self-destruction. Drugs and alcohol being a great persuader. The bedevilments that we talked about. One night, when confined in a hospital, he was approached by a man who was an alcoholic who had known a spiritual experience. Our friend Gord rose he bitterly cried out, If there is a God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. But later, alone in his room, he asked himself this question. Is it possible that all the religious people I have known are wrong? There it is, man. All the people in our lives are presenting a powerful argument with one extra faith. We're missing the beauty of the forest. It's there. The awareness. Pay attention. It's all around us. While pondering the answer, he felt as though he lived in hell. Then like a thunderbolt, a great thought came and crowded out all else. Who are you to say there is no God? This man recounts he tumbled out of bed to his knees. In a few seconds, he was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God. It poured over and through him. That internal connection, the fundamental idea, deep down in every man, woman, and child. 
The barriers he built through the years were swept away. He stood in the presence of infinite power and love. He stepped from bridge to shore. For the first time, he lived in conscious companionship with his creator. Thus was our friend's cornerstone. There it is. Fixed in place. No later vicissitude has shaken it. His alcoholic problem was taken away that very night. Years ago, it, it disappeared. Save for a few brief moments of temptation, though the thought of drinking or using has never returned. And at such times, a great revulsion has risen up in him. Seemingly, he could not drink or use even if he would. God has restored his sanity. Was this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. Circumstances made him willing to believe. There it is. You don't have to fully define it. You don't have to comprehend it. You don't have to believe what anyone else believes. Your belief could be inadequate, but it's still sufficient to get results. Just willing to believe. He humbly offered himself to his maker then he knew. Even so, as God restored us all to our right minds, this man, the revelation was sudden. Some of us grow into it more slowly, but he has come to all who have honestly sought him. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. And that's the transition for step three. We're making a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand him. Thoughts and actions. Step two, I'm identifying my spiritual belief, the beginning, the start, it's going to grow. I'm identifying some spiritual characteristics of my higher power, some character assets, some morals, some values, some beliefs. And in step three, I'm willing to put the action in finally. Consistent action. And through doing that and working the rest of the steps and not just believing but experiencing, I start to experience the solution of psychic change. Man, if you guys are having trouble believing, if step two is an obstacle, if you've worked your steps and you feel like you haven't got it and you haven't experienced it, revisit steps one, two, and three. I can't, he can, and I think I'll let him. Today I'm 100% convinced that I can't. Today I'm 100% convinced that he can. And I let him every day. Man, explore that belief. Get them feet moving. That's step two.